Welcome back, everyone, to our Sunday School series in the book of Zechariah. We're continuing to make our way through the text, verse by verse, as usual. And our text for today is Zechariah chapter 6, and we're going to finish up where we left off last time. So Zechariah 6, verses 9 through 15. Zechariah 6, verses 9 through 15. I'll read that, pray for us briefly, and then we will look at this text together. So. Zechariah 6, 9 through 15. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Take from among the exiles Heldiah and Tobiah and Jediah, and you yourself shall come on that day, and you shall enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they came from Babylon. And you shall take silver and gold, and you shall make a crown, and you shall set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. And you shall say to him, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. And from under him he will branch out, and he shall build the temple of Yahweh. And he himself will build the temple of Yahweh. And he himself will be raised up with splendor. And he shall sit, and he shall rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne. And the counsel of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be for Halem, and for Tobiah, and for Jediah, and for Hen, son of Zephaniah, as a remembrance in the temple of Yahweh. And those who are far off shall come, and they shall build the temple of Yahweh. Then you shall know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. And it shall come to pass... If you shall surely listen to the voice of Yahweh, your God. This is God's word. Let's uh, pray before we get into the text. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book. Lord, um, we pray that you would help us to understand it, give us eyes to see. And we pray that you would keep us attentive and that you would change us through this encounter with your holy word. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, well, you will remember that last week we had dealt with the final night vision in Zechariah, which was the vision of the four chariots. And so now, in the second half of chapter 6, our text for today, we are no longer dealing with visions anymore, but now we're dealing with verbal revelation from God. That is, God is actually telling Zechariah to do things or telling him about things. And the rest of the book is going to be like this. There's we're done with all of the, the night visions and the crazy stuff that we had going on, and now we're getting into more traditional, <clears throat> more uh, comfortable styles of God's Word. And even though we're getting into more comfortable styles of God's Word, Zechariah doesn't necessarily get more easier to un- or more easy to understand. Right? It's still difficult, and there's still so much stuff in this passage that we could talk about. I could, I could do a whole series on so many things in this passage, such as the Council of Peace, or what we'll, we'll see later is the Covenant of Redemption. That, that's a huge topic right there, and we could have a lot of fun with that. But we got to keep things moving and make our way through Zechariah at some point, so we have to cut and paste wherever we can. In any case, our text today, verses 9 through 15, breaks down into three sections. All right, First section is the crowning of Joshua. The second section is the enthroning of Joshua. 
And the third section is the Council of Peace. And so as we deal with these three components of this passage and see how they all work together, what we're going to see is that God will keep his promise to bring salvation to his people by providing a priest king. All right, that's essentially the main point of this passage. God will keep his promise to bring salvation for his people by providing a priest king. And this is such a great, great teaching. One of my favorite passages in all of Zechariah is right here. And so we're going to have some fun with this today. Now, first section, which is verses 9 through 12, we have the crowning of Joshua. And it's here that we get some really, especially if you were uh, uh, part of Zechariah's original audience, you would be uh, incredibly shocked at what is happening in the crowning of Joshua section here, verses 9 through 12. First of all, we have these three guys, Haldiah, Tobiah, and Jediah. And they almost seem to sort of show up out of nowhere. And they kind of do, actually. And that's because these guys are people who have recently arrived in the land of Canaan from Babylon. Uh, You may remember this. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Many Israelites, once Persia conquered Babylon and released them from their captivity, many of the Israelites just decided to stay in the Persian Empire. In fact, those are a lot of the Jews that you read about in the book of Esther. Uh, They're the Jews that stayed behind in the kingdom of Persia because they liked it there and they thought it was, you know, uh, decent. That's all they knew. They grew up there and that's that. Uh, But many of the Israelites, though, wanted to come back to the land of Canaan. And apparently, Heldiah, Tobiah, and Jedidiah were people who sort of lagged behind. They didn't come right away, but now they have finally arrived. And they haven't even had a chance to build their house yet because they're staying with Josiah, son of Zephaniah. So they're living in his house right now because they've recently returned from Babylon. And what Zechariah is commanded to do by God in this revelation here is Zechariah is commanded to go to their house and take silver and gold from them and fashion a crown. And what he is to do with this crown, in verse 11, is he is to take the crown and he is to set it on the head of Joshua, the high priest. So Zechariah is being commanded to put a crown on the head of the high priest. Now, this is where you would hear the record squealing noise among all of the listeners of Zechariah's original audience, okay? Because one of the huge, huge theological uh, doctrines of the Old Testament is that the priest and the king do not mix. Israel had a high view of the separation of church and state, if you will, if we want to put it in our modern terms. The priest was not allowed to rule the people, And the king was not allowed to perform priestly duties. In fact, in Chronicles, when one of the kings did try to do that, it ended really badly and he was struck with leprosy instantly. So the king and the priest do not mix in ancient Israel. And yet what is Zechariah commanded to do? He's commanded to crown the priest king. That's the record squealing noise. That is a major issue. That's a huge development. What is happening here would be the question that all of Zechariah's listeners would be asking. In fact, this is so unexpected that many liberal scholars, when they write commentaries on this passage, they will try to say that the author of this, of of Zechariah, made a mistake and should have wrote Zerubbabel instead of Joshua. That Zechariah is actually crowning Zerubbabel 
not Joshua. And you remember Zerubbabel, he showed up a few chapters ago. He's the one who's responsible for leading the project of rebuilding the temple and sort of governing the people of God at the time. He's sort of their leader. And the liberal scholars say, well, it makes a lot more sense that Zerubbabel would be crowned king because he's the governor. And so that's what's really happening here. The author just made a mistake. Uh, The problem is, of course, there is no textual evidence whatsoever that Zerubbabel is the name that's supposed to be here. Every Hebrew, Greek manuscript everywhere says Joshua. Okay, so that's a bad, bad way to look at this. There's no mistake here. This is supposed to be shocking. This is supposed to be unexpected. This is supposed to be huge and eye-opening for Zechariah's readers that a high priest would be crowned king. Now, this is not a political move, okay? God is not giving Zechariah permission to crown the high priest king and therefore rebel against the kingdom of Persia, who were controlling Israel at the time. That's not what's happening here. This is not a political move. This is rather a prophetic move. This is a move where Zechariah is going to be announcing something that God is going to do in the future, And we know this is a prophetic move and not a political move because, first of all, of course, you can't have a priest and a king be the same person according to Old Testament law. But secondly, a king of Israel has to be of the line of David. If you're actually going to have a true king of Israel, he has to be from the line of David. And Joshua, the high priest, is not from the line of David. He is not. Um, of the Davidic line, and so that means that he can't be king. Uh, Another thing that tells us that this is a prophetic move is because in verse 12, we have the association of the crowning and the ruling with the branch. And of course, you remember the term, the branch, that's a title for the Messiah. It showed up earlier in Zechariah, it shows up in Isaiah, and, and so on. We also see that later in the passage, particularly in verse 14, that the crown is actually removed from Joshua and taken to be a memorial in the temple. So Joshua doesn't get to keep the crown. It is removed from him and brought to the temple to be a memorial, to be a a symbol of what happened when Zechariah crowned him. So Joshua is not actually being crowned king in a political sense. Rather, this is a prophetic move on Zechariah's part to show something that's going to happen in the future. And here's what's going to happen in the future. Take a look with me at the rest of verse 12. And you shall say to him, saying, thus says Yahweh of hosts, saying, behold, the man, the branch is his name. And from under him, he will branch out and he shall build the temple of Yahweh. So after Zechariah crowns the high priest as king, He announces, behold, the man, his name is the branch. Zechariah is not saying that Joshua, the high priest of his day, is the Messiah. This is a prophetic move. Rather, what Zechariah is saying is that this represents the Messiah who is to come. This Messiah who's going to come one day, this branch, he's going to be both priest and king. Let me say that again. The Messiah who's going to come is going to be both priest and king. And what is this priest king going to do? He's going to build the temple. 
And we'll talk more about what it means that he'll build the temple in a second. But in verse 13, we have the enthroning of Joshua. The enthroning of Joshua, our second section. So we have the crowning of Joshua. Now we have the enthroning of Joshua in the first part of verse 13. Here's what it says. And he himself will build the temple of Yahweh, and he himself will be uh, raised up with glory. And he will sit, and he will rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne. Lest you miss the significance of what it means that the priest would receive a crown, Zechariah makes it even more clear here, saying that when the priest received the crown, he, not, he didn't just receive a nice hat to wear, but he actually receives a throne, and he shall rule from upon his throne, and he shall be a priest who rules from upon his throne. This is the perfect uniting of the offices of priest and king. And this is going to be what happens when the Messiah comes. The Messiah is going to be a priest and a king together. Now, thinking about the Old Testament, or thinking about the New Testament, I wonder who fits this bill. Oh, it's the person of Jesus, isn't it? It's the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, the author of Hebrews in the New Testament makes this abundantly clear when he says that Jesus comes after the order of Melchizedek. That is, Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. And what, what the author of Hebrews means by that is that Jesus is both priest and king. Because if you'll remember, Melchizedek, someone who shows up, rather kind of a mysterious figure who shows up in the life of Abraham, Melchizedek is a priest of Yahweh, we are told in the text. And Melchizedek is also the king of Salem. So Melchizedek is both priest and king. And the author of Hebrews takes this idea of the priest king and applies it to Jesus and says, Jesus is our priest king. Jesus is the one who unites these two offices. And if you want to know more about what exactly these two offices accomplish, you can look up our shorter catechism. I believe it's questions 25 and 26. 25 asks, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? And question 26 asks, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And so you can look up the answers um, to, there to, to get the, the details. But keeping this more big picture, Jesus is our priest king. He rules and he acts as mediator between God and man, the, the office of a king and the office of a priest respectively. Now, what, is, what else is he going to do? He's not only going to rule here, but we're told multiple times at the end of verse 12 and the end of verse 13, or excuse me, the beginning of verse 13, that Jesus, or the branch, this Messiah figure, this priest king figure, is going to build the temple of Yahweh. This priest king is going to build the temple of Yahweh. Now, if you've been paying attention throughout this Zechariah series, this should be no problem to figure out what's going on here. Because I've been saying over and over again throughout this series that this idea of the temple of Yahweh, God's temple, is not merely referring to the physical structure in Jerusalem that Zerubbabel is heading up the project of rebuilding. The temple of Yahweh in Zechariah is bigger than that, and it's not only in Zechariah is it bigger than that, 
But the temple of Yahweh in Scripture encompasses more than just the physical location. If we turn to the New Testament, for example, we see that Christ refers to his own body as the temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it, he says. And the gospel authors tell us explicitly, but he was referring to the temple of his own body. And so Jesus' body is the temple of Yahweh in a certain sense, but not only is Jesus' body the temple, but so is the church. The church is referred to as the temple of God. And so we are, in a sense, as believers, the church, the structure, the spiritual structure that God is building. You remember earlier in Zechariah, God talked about how he's going to rebuild his temple and there are not going to be physical walls, but rather there will be walls of fire. That is, there will be spiritual walls. God's temple that he's building through the work of the Messiah is not going to be a temple made with hands. It's going to be a spiritual temple. And we see that theme again showing up here. The work of the priest king, the one who will rule and the one who will be the mediator between God and man, he is going to build God's spiritual temple. And this is all solidified if you take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the Davidic covenant. The covenant that God made with David, if you remember, is a covenant about Jesus. And God says that Jesus is going to do this. The Messiah is going to do this in 2 Samuel 7. He will, quote, build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. There's the work of Christ promised to David that a descendant of his will build a house that, will, that is, he will build the temple. And secondly, he will have a kingdom. And praise God that Jesus is our temple-building priest and kingdom-ruling king. That is our Christ. And Christ is clearly showing up here in Zechariah. Now, we get now to the third section of this passage which is uh, beginning in the second half of verse 13. And this is where we have this section of, on the council of peace. Let me read it for you here. It's very, very short. Second half of verse 13. And a council of peace shall be between both of them. And a council of peace shall be between both of them. Now, this is a passage of scripture. Adam referred to this in his sermon uh, this past Sunday, his sermon on predestination from John chapter 6. This passage is what Reformed theologians have often referred to to um, help them understand the doctrine of what we call the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. Now, when we talk about the covenant of redemption, do not get that confused with the covenant of grace. I know that as covenant theologians, we talk about covenants here and covenants here and all this covenant and that covenant, and it can get kind of confusing as to which covenants we're talking about. And I, I understand that. The covenant of grace is the covenant that God made with man, agreeing to save him by grace through the work of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Okay, so the covenant of grace is one of the divine covenants that God makes with man. The covenant of redemption, on the other hand, which is the one that this passage treats, is a covenant that God has made with himself. It's a covenant that the members of the Trinity have made with each other. And what the covenant of redemption does, 
okay, what the purpose of it is, is that it is the agreement between the members of the Trinity to send the Son to accomplish redemption for God's elect and to reward the Son with a kingdom. Okay? Let me say that again. The covenant of redemption is a covenant between the members of the Trinity where they agreed to send the Son to accomplish redemption for God's elect and to reward the Son with a kingdom. Now you may say, well, that sounds awfully speculative. That sounds like theologians smoking cigars, sitting around a table, all right? But one thing you got to understand is Zechariah 6 is not the only passage of Scripture where we believe uh, we're, uh, the covenant of redemption is being described. It, it shows up in all kinds of places. This is merely one place, and it gives us a little bit of a glimpse into this great doctrine of the covenant of redemption. Let me point you to Luke chapter 22, verse 29, and let me just tell you that what Jesus says is he says, my father covenanted to me a kingdom. So however you want to understand the covenant of redemption, you cannot deny that there was a covenant made between the members of the Trinity. Here Jesus refers to a covenant made between himself and God the Father. So God the Son and God the Father have made a covenant with themselves, and it involves giving the Son a kingdom. And if you use Scripture to interpret Scripture, and you look at all the various passages, which we don't have time to do right now, you find that the covenant of redemption is thoroughly biblical and sound. And here in Zechariah uh, chapter 6, verse 13, we have the covenant of redemption being described as the, quote, counsel of peace between the two of them. And the two of them being referred to here is, of course, Yahweh, who is one of the major, major figure here in this passage, and then you've got the branch, or the priest king. The branch and Yahweh, that's the two of them. So there's a council of peace between Yahweh and the branch, God and the Son, God the Father and God the Son, I should say. There's a council of peace between them, an agreement made to secure the peace of God's people, the eternal peace. The Hebrew word here is shalom. You remember I talk about that word a lot. The concept of shalom is ultimately fulfilled in heaven. And so the counsel of peace between the Father and the Son is to agree upon the plan of salvation to save God's elect and bring them peace. The council of peace between Yahweh and the branch indicates that they have made an agreement to bring about a state of peace for God's elect, for God's people. And not only this, but in the passage we see this strong theme of the Messiah being a king and receiving a throne and a crown and therefore tacitly assumed a kingdom, just like Jesus says in Luke 22. That was part of the agreement of the covenant of redemption, to give the Son a kingdom. That is, not an earthly kingdom, a kingdom of believers in him, the kingdom of God's elect. And so do you see how huge this section is? 
This is the promise of the Messiah fulfilling the office of priest and of king. This is a passage showing us the covenant of redemption and the eternal plan of God to send the Messiah and to give him a kingdom and to render a people for him and to bring about peace for those people. This is huge. There's so much going on. And here we can see God is fulfilling his promises, isn't he? But then notice the last part here in verse 15. The last part. And you shall know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. And here's this interesting phrase that really tripped me up for a second until I thought about it more clearly. Here's what it says. And it will come to pass if you shall surely obey and listen to the voice of Yahweh your God. That is, it seems to be saying that all this business of crowning the branch and God sending the priest king, this Messiah, and he will rule and all this stuff, that is, all of this is going to happen if, O Israel, you obey me. Now stop and think about that for a second. Is God saying that he will only send the Messiah if Israel is obedient? If that's what it's saying, does that make any sense? (laughs) Because... No, the answer is no. The whole reason that God is sending the Messiah is because the people are disobedient. So it doesn't make any sense for God to be saying that God will send the Messiah if the people are obedient, or that God will give a kingdom to the Messiah if the people are obedient. That doesn't make any sense. Unless we understand one very important theological truth. And here's what it is. And I found this wonderful quote from... One of my professors, Dr. Fesco, who is our professor of theology here at RTS in Jackson. And Dr. Fesco wrote a, actually I think he wrote two books on the covenant of redemption. I've got one of them. And here's what he says as he's commenting on this passage in Zechariah. He asked the question, can Israel by their disobedience trump God's promises to send the Messiah? Is God's promise to send Jesus and give him a kingdom contingent upon the obedience of the people of Israelites, the people of Israel? Well, here's what he says, quote, Hence, one of the constituent elements of the council of peace between Yahweh and the branch is that the Christ would offer the necessary representative obedience that God requires of Israel. In other words, In order for Christ, the Messiah, to receive his kingdom, he is going to need to offer the obedience that Israel should have offered. This is why the condition of of obedience is here. In order for the son to have a kingdom from God, in order for the son to receive this kingdom covenanted to him by the father, Israel is going to have to be obedient the people of God are going to have to be obedient. And that's precisely why Jesus is obedient for them. Jesus offers representative obedience. Jesus obeyed when the people of God were disobedient. And in fact, this is why theologians talk about in the covenant of redemption, there were conditions. And the condition was that Jesus fulfill the obedience that Israel could not. That Jesus fulfilled the obedience that sinful human beings could not. In order to be saved, human beings must be obedient. 
in order to be part of the kingdom that God the Father is giving to God the Son. Human beings must be obedient. They must be perfect. They must be holy and blameless. But they can't do it. And that is why in the covenant of redemption, the Father and the Son agreed that the Son would accomplish the obedience that sinful human beings could not. And oh, praise God that he did that, right? Praise God that we are saved by the work of Christ and not by our works. And so built in to Zechariah 6 and all this business about the priest king and the council of peace, built into this structure is the idea of the necessity of obedience And the only one being able to accomplish that obedience is Jesus himself. I think, folks, as we bring this to a conclusion, this passage so well highlights how God will keep his promises. Because God has not only kept his promise to Zechariah to send this priest king, God not only kept his promise to David about sending a descendant of his, to build his spiritual temple and to receive a kingdom and to rule. But the triune God has kept the promise that he made to himself before the foundation of the world and the covenant of redemption to send Jesus and to give him a kingdom and to provide the means necessary to save sinful human beings. Folks, that's the gospel. And we praise God today that it is clearly presented to us here in Zechariah. Let's pray and thank our Lord and Savior for this great salvation and for our God keeping his promises. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you keep your promises. You are a promise-keeping God. You keep your promises to all of your servants. And you keep your promises to yourself. And Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you that Jesus is our priest king, that he is the mediator between us and you, and that he rules. And Lord, we thank you that you sent Christ and that he accomplished the obedience that we could not so that we could be part of the kingdom that you have given to him. Lord, we thank you for this great truth, and we pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.